Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 17. We're reading down to the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy and the fifth chapter beginning in verse 17. Where Paul writes, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure." Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake <clears throat> and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. And we trust the Lord will bless the reading of his precious word. Now, much that has gone before us as we have been looking at the role and responsibilities of the pastor has dealt really with the qualifications and the qualities that you're looking for in any would-be pastor. Chapter 3 had much to say about the pastoral call and credentials and character. And uh, chapter 4 then spoke of his personal life and of his doctrine. But this morning I want to think about the church's responsibility to her pastor. Now this is probably a message that most pastors would love to preach if they could get away with it. <laughs> and uh, what I mean by that is if, if I were to preach this in the middle of my ministry, it might appear to be self-seeking or self-serving. Uh, but since I will not benefit directly from this message, I can now feel free to say exactly what I would want to say, perhaps, or perhaps may have wanted to say, uh, or indeed a hope that will benefit whoever comes after me. So uh, I, I, I want to preach about how you can look after your pastor, how to care for your pastor. And recent statistics from pastors in the United States reveal some interesting figures. They record that 53% of pastors do not feel adequately prepared for the ministry. Now, I can appreciate that. Certainly, when I was a young pastor, I really felt out of my depth most of the time and uh, felt overwhelmed. Uh, we'd oftentimes be studying until 3 o'clock, even on a Sunday morning, trying to prepare for Sunday services and then getting up with hardly any rest and preaching. And it was just really a lot of pressure. And I felt tremendously overwhelmed and inadequate at the outset. 70% of pastors say they do not have someone whom they consider a close friend. Now, that might surprise you, uh, but again, it doesn't really surprise me because even though pastors are surrounded by people, the ministry by nature tends to be a rather isolated vocation. And so you can experience a lot of loneliness 
even when you're surrounded by people. 72% of pastors only study the Bible when preparing for sermons or lessons. And again, that doesn't surprise me, particularly in those early days. Uh, it's, uh, you know, to prepare for three messages a week takes a lot of time. Uh, and you know, sometimes you're just burned out. The idea of sitting down and reading even more Bible it just you just feel like I can't take anymore. Um, so hopefully a pastor over time he becomes a good he becomes a good time manager and he is able to have some time in the Word for himself and not be just reading all the time uh, by way of occupation so to speak. Uh, but you know I certainly uh, sometimes people say to me when, when I'm going on holiday why don't you take a good book <laughs> and I say I've spent the whole year reading good books. <laughs> I'd like a week where I don't read books, where I just sit and lick ice cream and look at the sea or whatever, you know. Um, 44% of pastors do not take a regular day off. And again, that's uh, very common, uh, particularly in younger pastors um, who are burned out, you know, trying to get everything, everything sorted and get everything ready for Sundays and taking care of visiting and admin and all the rest of it. And very often they're not taking a regular day off. 70% say they are grossly underpaid. And really, if you looked at a lot of pastors and what they do get paid, um, if they were in a secular sphere of employment, they would not be working at all uh, because the government simply wouldn't permit churches to pay what some churches are paying their pastors. And uh, it's really quite shocking, I guess. But you know, I appreciate in some instances that's all a church can afford. It may be just a handful of people. Uh, but you know, the old prayer is, uh, Lord, uh, you keep them humble and we'll keep them poor. And uh, that's not a good attitude, is it? So uh, 70% say they're underpaid. And we could go on. But most people in the pew don't really get all of this, because not because they're uncaring, but simply because they don't really understand. They have little concept of pastoral life. A number of years ago, I had a young man come to my church in Belfast, and he did six weeks of an internship with me. He was sent by a Bible college. He did a six-week internship with me. We had him stay with one of the church families, and the lady in that home after he had left said, Pastor, I had no idea how much time you spend in the ministry until he came and stayed with us because he was out with you morning, noon, and night. And so she began to get a grasp that uh, the pastoral work is not just on Sunday morning, Sunday evening, and Wednesday night, but that it goes on through the week. So the church has a responsibility for the care of our pastor. And I, I wonder, when you call this new pastor, will you determine each one individually to be a help to him, to be an encouragement to him, to be a prayer warrior for him? Will you commit to care for this pastor? Now, in the text before us, we find four principles that Paul puts forth with respect to church life and how a church may care for its pastor. And then I'm going to take the liberty of adding one more uh, to this list. But the first thing I want you to notice in verse 17 is that a church ought to prize her pastor. It says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and doctrine. So I would say that a healthy relationship with church and pastor begins right here with the people showing honor to the pastor. And that's what the word honor there means. It, it has the idea of 
prizing somebody, of valuing them, of honoring them, of esteeming them highly. Uh, and so we ought to consider this, uh, first of all, this matter of honor. You know, a godly pastor is a gift of God to the local church. Ephesians 4.11 says, And he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors, teachers. And so they, we see right there that the pastor-teacher role is gifted to a church in the person that God provides. And so the pastor's office is an office of high honor. Indeed, this very book states categorically, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good thing. He desireth a position of excellence and honor. So there's no higher call. There's nothing of greater privilege or honor than for a man to be chosen of God to under-shepherd the flock that Jesus has bought with his own blood. But because it is such a high calling, and because the man holds such a high office, he's not to be lightly spoken of or ill-spoken of or disregarded as a matter of course, but rather he's to be greatly esteemed by the people. Look in the 1 Timothy, or 1 Thessalonians, sorry, in chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And notice what Paul says here in verse 12. He says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you. So you're instructed to be well acquainted with the pastor. And then verse 13, And to esteem them very highly, in love for their work's sake. Now notice that last line. They're to be esteemed very highly for their work's sake. It's not about the individual. A pastor should be accorded the utmost of respect, not necessarily because of who he is, but because of what he does, because of the office he holds. So the Greek is very emphatic there in that 1 Thessalonians. Paul was stressing that the pastoral office and role is to be upheld with the highest possible honor. And not only is the pastor to be respected and esteemed and honored, but he's to be lovingly upheld. Notice he's to be esteemed in love, very highly in love for the work's sake. You know, sometimes the pastor comes into the pulpit and he's bearing personal burdens. He has his own discouragements. Uh, sometimes he has been subject to a complaint or a criticism just prior to the service. I can tell you that's a, that's a killer, okay? If you're going to bring a complaint, may I suggest that you bring it gently during the week and not five minutes before the pastor enters into the pulpit because then his mind is occupied with your complaint and your criticism and is not focused upon the Word of God. Sometimes he comes with his own personal griefs. You know, I remember when my mother passed away and she passed away just three days before Christmas. And I, I missed... Uh, I wasn't able to be there when she passed away. And, and then I came into the pulpit Christmas Day uh, bearing that burden. And, you know, that's not unusual. Uh, you know, pastors do that kind of thing all the time. Uh, sometimes, so you'll, you'll come in and, and you'll feel very alone in this world. And so you really need, to, the pastor needs to be encouraged along the way. You know, he needs to be considered. You know, who's going to be the pastor's friend? Who's going to be the pastor's prayer partner? Who's going to be a Barnabas 
to the pastor? Uh, who's going to give him that little lift that he gives you sometimes? Who's going to be an encourager to him, if not you? Notice that Paul told the Thessalonians then in verse 13 that having to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake, that they should be at peace among yourselves. Why is that? Because when you're squabbling, and thank God for this church because there's very rarely squabbles and fights and arguments in this church. But, uh, you know, I have been in positions at times where there has been conflict, not in this church but in my previous church, very severe conflict. And I can tell you, you have no idea the amount of stress that puts you under as a pastor. I mean, it is intense. And it's 24-7 uh, that, that, that you're under this stress. I remember being in a stressful situation in my first pastorate. And uh, I didn't even realize I was uh, under stress. And, and, I, and I had a stomach pain, a very tight stomach pain. And I went to see my doctor, and my doctor prodded all around me, and he was a very wise doctor. He wasn't a Christian man. He was a Roman Catholic man. But he, he felt all around my stomach, and he said, there's nothing physically wrong with you. And then he looked at me and says, are you having stress in your church? Is there conflict in your church? I thought, how wise he was, uh, that he identified that problem without knowing anything about it. So, you, you know, it's, it's bad enough for the pastor to be contending with Satan and with the world and the opposition that comes from without, without having to deal with those kinds of difficulties within. So the church is exhorted to be at peace among yourselves. Godly pastors must be esteemed, they must be loved, and uh, the churches are instructed to love them and be at peace among yourselves. So a church firstly ought to praise her pastor. Then secondly, notice she ought to provide for her pastor. Look at verse 18 of 1 Timothy 5 verse 18 it says for the scripture saith thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn and the laborer is worthy of his reward now in the previous verse Paul said the pastor who rules well who labors in word and doctrine is worthy of double honor and that word honor is the word that gives us the English word honorarium. Now, an honorarium is a financial gift that is given to someone who provides their services for free. And so, you know, we invite someone to come to our church every now and then. We ask them to preach or, uh, or present some ministry, mission or whatever. And uh, we give them at the end of the service an honorarium. Now, that simply means that they came freely. They didn't say, well, I'll come, but it's going to cost you £250 for my time or whatever. You know, we had one fellow who said that, and all the 17 years I've been here, invited one person to come, and they gave me a list of demands. They had to be put up in the hotel, and they wanted this, and they wanted that, and £250 minimum love offering. This is for a Wednesday night. Uh, I thought to myself, you know, chance on a Wednesday night. <laughs> um, let me give you £15. But, <laughs> but, uh, so I just wrote him back and said, no, I'm sorry, we can't afford that. And I really didn't want them to come. Because if you make those preconditions, I feel like it's just wrong. And so everybody else that's came has come freely at their own expense. 
And so we respect that. We cover their expenses. We pay for their petrol expenses. Uh, you know, we, we cover them uh, beyond that. And we recognize that they have gifted us by means of their ministry. And so we go beyond the expenses. And out of gratefulness to their service, we give them a little bit more. Now, that's right and that's proper. And that's called an honorarium. And that's where the idea comes from, from this Greek word that is translated honor here. So here we see that the elder, especially one who's committed to overseeing the church and teaching and overseeing the affairs of the church, is worthy of double honor. And uh, that literally means double pay. He's worthy of double pay. But again, that has to do with how you esteem him. Paul is not suggesting you've got to keep doubling his pay. But what he's saying is that you've got to value him highly. But then he does move on to talk about provision. And he says this, that thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his hire. So it's, this is a quotation now from the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 25 and verse 4, where Hebrew farmers were instructed not to prevent their oxen uh, from eating the grain as they were, uh, as they were treading out the, threshing their, their, their grain. So as the animal moved around, of course, it would take little nibbles as it went along, and the, the Jewish farmer was instructed that he should not prevent that. He shouldn't strike out at the animal or prevent the animal from eating that which it was, uh, that which it was producing uh, because the animal was doing the work that deserved to be rewarded. Well, listen, if oxen deserve to be rewarded, then here's the simple principle. Pastors deserve to be rewarded uh, for their endeavor. They, they ought to be provided for. If God cares for the ox of the field, he certainly cares for the man in the pulpit. And, uh, and so in that respect, we ought to recognize that having poured over the scriptures, having spent many hours reading and rereading and preparing to preach and teach, and then beside that, taking care of the other matters pertaining to church life, a pastor should be provided for. You know, it's interesting that Paul falls back on this passage again in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If you would look there for a moment, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. One Corinthians chapter nine and verse nine. It says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. And then he asks the obvious question Doth God take care for oxen? Is this just about animal welfare? Or saith that he altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now he says, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, you know, if the doctor and the dentist and the, uh, and the uh, mechanic and the electrician and the plumber and all the other people can, you know, expect a payment from you, Paul says, well, if others do this, uh, are not we rather, if they have that power, shouldn't we also have a similar uh, degree of, of acknowledgement of our service? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. And that was 
was Paul's personal choice. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live off the things of the temple, and they which wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel in a full-time capacity, like the priests of old, should live off the gospel. So he's telling us here that a pastor should be provided for. And actually, it's very interesting in verse 10. He that plows should plow in hope. Uh, and he that threshes, he should thresh in hope. He should be a partaker of hope. In other words, he shouldn't be worrying necessarily about how he's going to pay his electric bill. Or how he's going to put food on the table for his family. Or how he's going to meet his mortgage payment. The church needs to, if it can possibly afford to, make sure that he is well provided for. So that those things are of no consequence to him. And his focus is upon the things of God. You know, in, uh, in my last pastor at one point, I had this rather awkward meeting with the deacons. They called me in one year to inform me that they were not going to give me a pay raise. Pay raise. And uh, they said, and I'll remember their words to my dying day, we think you're paid enough. And I, and I you know, I, I, first of all, I never asked for a pay raise. In fact, I think it's fair to say in all my time here, I've never asked for a pay raise. So this was something they took upon themselves. And so I asked the deacons, each one of them, there was three of them there, and uh, one of them was a mechanic, and one of them was a fitter, and one of them was a, a truck driver. And I said to each one of them, well... Uh, how much do you get paid? And so they didn't want to admit how much they got paid. And uh, finally I you know, persuaded them to tell me. And so the man who was a fitter was paid substantially more than me. And the man who was a motor mechanic was paid substantially more than me. And so I asked them, well, you know, I have no problem with you not giving me a pay raise. That doesn't bother me. I said, but I would like you to explain to me why a motor mechanic should be paid more than a pastor, or why a fitter should be paid more than a pastor. And uh, at which point they were completely flummoxed, and they said, well, well all right, then we'll give you a pay raise. <laughs> but actually, it wasn't about the pay raise, because what happened in that moment, and this was really important, what happened in that moment was a realization on my part that I was no longer valued. And so I began to continue my ministry there with a loss of hope. So eventually that led to my departure, among other things. So you've got to be very careful here, all right? Uh, you know, no, no godly pastor is going to come seeking, you know, top dollar for his services. But nevertheless, you have a responsibility to make sure that he is adequately paid for and provided for. So pastors are to be provided for. And Paul says here, the laborer is worthy of his reward in 1 uh, Timothy chapter 5. And so these are, these are really a, a repeat of Jesus' words from Luke chapter 10, when he sent out the 70, commanding them to rely upon the generosity and hospitality of those to whom they ministered. And that principle hasn't changed. Now let me say something if I may, about a pastor's salary that is often forgotten. And, and, and particularly here in the case, in the way our church pays the pastor. Um, because there's no provision 
specifically in our means of payment for pastoral expenses, okay? In other words, the pastor pays for his own fuel, he pays for his own office equipment, he pays for his own study aids, he pays for his own uh, hospitality if he if he's, has guests that he's housing on behalf of the church. Uh, all of that uh, comes into play. Now, here's what I want to say to you. Remember that when you set the salary. Okay, because a lot of folks come in and they look at the top line and they think, oh, pastor's very well paid. And admittedly, that would be the case if that was his entire disposable income. But you've got to remember that out of that, you know, several thousands of pounds a year coming out in fuel and all those other things, that, that is a deduction from what he's, from that top line. And so that's just something I want to say that you ought to bear in mind when you see that top line. Now, it's not a criticism. Please don't go home and say, well, pastors aren't being unhappy with the salary, and that's why he's moving on. That's not at all. Uh, I've told you already that I'm, uh, I'm moving off for a, a lesser salary, so if I wanted a bigger salary, I'd stay here. Uh, but, but what I'm saying here is it's just something to bear in mind because it's very easy. I remember, again, in a, in a business meeting one time, um, and, and this was a... This was a a galling matter for me at the time that they, they would allow 15 year olds and 16 year olds to, to have a say in this particular business meeting and uh, some of these kids would think that I was like a millionaire compared to them uh, and I'd say you know because they were comparing what the pastor was being paid to their weekly allowance <laughs> and they were like oh he's paid loads but they had no idea what was coming out of your salary and so we, we changed that ultimately at that church but but here's the deal folks you know, do your best to provide the best you can for the pastor you have. Then a, a church ought to protect her pastor. Look at verse 19 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, Against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Now, like anyone in leadership, pastors are often subject to criticism. You know, if you step, step onto the platform, you're underneath the limelights, as it were, you're going to be criticized from time to time. So pastors have to learn uh, to handle criticism, to develop a, something of a thick skin, and to judge which criticisms are fair and justified and which are not. And then to know how best to address the justified criticisms and to ignore the unjustified criticisms. But that said, know this, that a pastor as the leader of the church is very often the specific target of satanic attention. Do you remember in the olden days, this next congregation won't get this at all, but you'll get this. In the olden days, on Saturday afternoons or Saturday mornings, they used to show cowboy and Indian movies on the TV. Remember that? You get up and watch The Lone Ranger and Tonto and all those goods, all that good stuff. The High Chaparral, all those things. You remember those things, right? Next group, they won't know all that. They're all Star Wars. They're all out in space somewhere. But uh, we were riding the planes with uh, all the Billy the Kid and all the famous cowboys and, and outlaws. And uh, if you remember in those movies, very often when the cowboys met the Indians, the target of their attention was whom? The chief. Because if you could kill the chief, well then the braves would scatter. It was not the idea. And so the devil is no mug because he, he knows the same thing is true. That if he can get at the leader, then he's going to hurt the whole congregation. Uh, so when I was ordained, the, uh, one of the men that spoke at my ordination who gave the charge to the church, uh, encouraged the church to pray for me. And he said, he said, you know, he said, the devil hates you, speaking to the church. And then he pointed at me and he says, but he really hates him. 
He hits you, but he really hits him. And that stuck in my mind. And, and there's a lot of truth in that. Because sometimes Satan stirs up discontent with leadership, with the pastor. And on occasion, the odd occasion, accusations are made not just against his judgment, but sometimes against his very person. So what should we do when someone makes an allegation against the pastor? Well, here's the first thing you do. You ask if there are any witnesses to the alleged wrong. Did someone else hear him say that or see him do that? Now, that's what the Bible says there. It says that against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So you need to find witnesses if this is truly the case. So if the individual says, you know, our pastor is this, and you say, well, have, you, have somebody else said that, or is that just you? And they say, that's just me. Well, then you don't even entertain it. You just walk away from it. You know, uh, our, our brother Silas, he's not here this morning, but uh, Silas had a, uh, this came me through the grapevine. He doesn't even know that I know about this. But uh, Silas was encountered by someone in Hanley one day who began to very badly speak of me, you know, speak of me very badly. And uh, not one of our members, I'm glad to say, not someone who's in regular attendance, but someone who had been to church and who began to speak very negatively about me. And Silas, I'm told, after the fellow started into it, just got up and walked away and said, I'm not going to listen to that because that's not the man that I know. That's the right thing to do. That's the right thing to do. So, you know, again, you know, we've got to have these witnesses. If there are no witnesses, you dismiss it out of hand. The word accusation there is the Greek word categoria, from which we get the word categorical. So no matter how categorical the accusation is, no matter how absolute the accuser is, no matter how positive they may seem in their accusation, the accusation is literally not to be entertained. That's what the word receive there means. Don't even entertain a criticism against your pastor uh, unless there is justification unless there are other witnesses to the same wrong okay uh, so you've got to remember that the devil is the accuser of the brethren isn't he and he's always going to throw some accusation at the man who's the pastor from time to time then don't just protect his testimony but protect his time you know sometimes pastors get caught up doing things that other people could do or should do now, sometimes, in my part, I confess that's entirely my doing because I'm a bit of a perfectionist, I confess. And every now and then, I do things that I should be leaving for others to do. So I hold my hand up and say, on my part, <laughs> I should work harder at delegation, okay? Um, but uh, that's not necessarily true of the next person who comes, okay? And so uh, sometimes pastors, you know, end up doing mundane things, doing things around the church when, in fact, the leadership uh, of the church is designed by God specifically to prevent that. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 6. God gave the church deacons so that pastors might give themselves to the word of God and to prayer without distraction. So protect his time. Then protect their families. You know, there's an old saying that goes like this in marital matters, and I'm a great believer in it. Happy wife happy life. <laughs> okay? 
When you're married any length of time, you learn this is the golden rule of marriage, okay? So you learn to say, yes, dear. Whatever you want, dear. Okay? Uh, and you just go with whatever she wants to do and go and, uh, and be part of. So happy wife, happy life. Now, did you realize that a lot of pastors, a lot of missionaries move on from their places of service because of the influence of their wives? Because their wives are unhappy. And, you know, you've got to be careful here to protect the pastor's family. You know, if he's not looking after himself, you know, if he's, if he's spending every hour that God sends taking care of you and not taking care of his family, he's going to have an unhappy wife. And if he's got an unhappy wife, you know what she's going to say someday? She's going to say, let's move on to another church or let's do something else with our lives. And you're going to lose him because she is discontent. Now, that's not a criticism of her because any wife put in that position would probably be equally discontent. So you've got to recognize that he has, has uh, family responsibilities. And remember this too. The pastor's wife is not the pastor. Okay? She is not the pastor. I say that because sometimes people fall back on the pastor's wife. <coughs> like she should have the same knowledge uh, as the pastor. That she should know the Bible just as well as her husband knows the Bible. I remember a lady called my wife one time in, in my last church, and she called my wife, and uh, I wasn't home, and she said, well, I'll ask you. And she began to offload some problem that she had, and uh, Hazel said, well, you know, uh, you need to talk to David about that. He's not here. Why don't you talk to him about that? And she got very upset, and she says, well, you're the pastor's wife. You should know. And she said, well, you know, if you took your car to the motor mechanic and the mechanic wasn't there, would you take it to his wife? <laughs> no, you wouldn't. And that was a good point to make. You know, she's not the pastor. I'm the pastor. And so the next pastor, the same thing. You know, obviously you want the, the pastor's wife to be involved and, and to be part of things, but just the same as any other church member. She doesn't have an office. She doesn't, she shouldn't be elevated. She's not the queen. She's just the pastor's wife. You know, one church says to me, well, what will your wife do for us if we were to call you? I say, here's what she'll do. She'll cook my meals and iron my shirts and wash my clothes and make our bed and take care of our children. And while she's doing all of that, I can take care of you. So take care of your pastor's wife. Take care of your pastor's children if he has children. You know, be, be mindful of them. Protect them. Children, you know, being a, being a pastor's kid, it can be tough. Because, again, sometimes standards are expected of you that are not expected of other children in the congregation. And so you should just allow the children to be children. You know, they'll mess up. They'll do things that aggravate and annoy, the same as other children do from time to time. Uh, but that's no cause for singling them out because they're the pastor's children. You know, I remember, again, someone coming to our children one day and they were very unhappy about something, and this, this man got in our children's faces as they were getting into the car. I was still in the church when this happened. He ran out into the car park and came after the children, and he, and he screamed at the children, your daddy is ruining people's lives. Well, why draw little children into it? You know, they were only like 10 and 11. Why, why would you draw little children into it? You know, if you're going to be a man and going to be a compl you know, complain about it, well, be a man, complain about it man to man. Don't take it out on little, little children. That's an unchristian way to behave. 
So protect their families. Now, we say protect the pastor. That's not to say pastors are infallible, that they're always right, that they get everything right all the time, that they never sin. You're never going to find another pastor like me. (laughs) Of course they do. But there's a means and a way of handling that problem when it arises. Look at verse 20. You ought to prove your pastor. A church ought to prove her pastor. Them that sin, rebuke before all, that others also may fear. Now when it says the them there, them that sin, is referring to elders, to pastors specifically. Not just to church members, but to pastors. And and the, the sin involved is any sin that would be in violation of the credentials and qualifications of the pastor's office as recorded in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy. If he is obviously living a life out of step with his calling, if he is unfaithful to his marriage, if he is a badly behaved Christian, if he is, as it turns out, to be a violent man, a striker, a brawler, if he's dishonest in his financial affairs, if he's a bad testimony in the community around, well, then he needs to be set straight. Now, those are the primary issues that Paul is concerned about here when he says, them that sin. You know, he says, uh, you know, where there is a, a transgression against pastoral integrity, uh, where there is, uh, where there is a, a transgression against the pastoral office, he needs to be corrected. And if he is accused then, if someone comes along and says, well, actually, the pastor has committed adultery. Well, are there witnesses to that? If there are witnesses, if there are other people, be they in the church or out of the church for that matter, who can verify that, that the pastor is guilty in that area, then that pastor needs to be rebuked before all. He needs to be brought before the church. And after fair examination, if the church agree that he is guilty of such a thing, then he must step down from the pulpit and no longer pastor the church. Now, of course, it's possible he may repent. Uh, you know, he may be restored to ministry uh, in time, but uh, in the case of adultery, perhaps, that may not be the case. Proverbs says this, that whosoever committeth adultery with a woman lacketh understanding, he that doeth it destroyeth his own soul. A wound and dishonor shall he get, and his reproach shall not be wiped away. You hear that? His reproach shall not be wiped away. Not that God won't forgive him, but that people in the community won't forgive him. And therefore, he's not in a... ...sexual misconduct in the, in the old church that used to meet before our church met in that old building. And uh, years ago, I was doing door-to-door, and I met this person who got very upset with me about what went on. And I tried to explain to him that it was nothing to do with anybody who was presently meeting in the building, but he wouldn't hear of it. And he was going on and on and on and on about what had happened and what a disgrace it was and why he wouldn't be a Christian and how dare I knock his door and blah, blah, blah. You see what the Bible says? It's saying here that the reproach shall not be wiped out. Even years later, 30, 40 years later, this was still being remembered. And so if the pastor commits adultery, that's a very serious issue. And he is no longer fit for service. 
So to bring such a charge, you know, to, to charge your pastor in this way, well, it takes courage, doesn't it? I mean, who wants to stand up and say, the pastor is this or the pastor is that before the whole church? You want to be sure of yourself before you make such, a, such a, an accusation. And so to bring such a charge requires a great deal of uh, commitment and courage, if it be true. And so Timothy's encouraged to grasp the nettle in this respect. In verse 21, he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Notice that. So he's saying here that, that, rather, than, that than, you know, rather than just letting the thing go, you need to deal with it. Don't be partial. Don't say, well, you know, I'm, I'm not going to bring this accusation because it's the pastor. The pastor is as subject to church discipline as any church member. He's not above God's law. But then he should be a proven man. If you want to avoid this situation, go for a proven man. Look in verse 22. He says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partakers of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. Now the laying on of hands here has to do with appointment, with ordination, with identification. And there's an old saying, isn't there? Prevention is better than cure. Okay? So the way to prevent, or one of the ways you can minimize pastoral issues and problems in the church is by conducting a thorough examination of the individual you're calling. And in so doing, the church then doesn't end up with a man in the pulpit who really has no right to be there. Uh, and you become a partaker in his sins. So if you call a man who's not ordained, then I suggest that you get him ordained. That you sit down and have other pastors examine him. Examine not just his doctrine, which is important, but examine also his character, his testimony. That's vitally important. And so that's really, uh, really a, a, a very um, important truth, a, a vital truth. It's imperative that you, in calling a pastor, call a man who's proven to you. Notice verse 24 and 25. Some men's sins are open beforehand, so some men you can dismiss right away because you know their character is not good, going before the judgment. And some men's sins they follow after. Their sins are revealed later on. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand. Sometimes you know full well who you've got, and they've got a good testimony and a good character, and you know who you're calling, and there's no issue. And they that are otherwise cannot be hid. So we find then the church ought to prove her pastor as well as protect her pastor. But then I want you to go with me to Romans chapter 15 and one final thought. Romans chapter 15 and verse 30. And here's my last thought. A church ought to pray for her pastor. I'm adding that thought. A church ought to pray for her pastor. Chapter 15 and verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. You strive with me in your prayers to God 
for me. You know, it's very interesting. If you read through the epistles of Paul, he asked the Romans to pray for him, the Corinthians to pray for him, the Ephesians to pray for him, the Philippians to pray for him, the Colossians to pray for him, the Thessalonians to pray for him. He asked all of these believers to pray for him. You see, he knew better than anybody that the prayers of God's people are the secret to successful and blessed church ministry. He understood that the power of God could not rest upon him apart from the prayers of God's people. Pray for your pastor. Pray for him as he prepares for Sundays and midweek meetings. Pray for him as he steps into the pulpit. Pray for him as he makes visits. Pray for him as he oversees the ministry. You know, your prayers are the secret to his power. You know, I was in Ashbourne last week, as, as you know, and, and the, the man who leads the meeting there spoke to me at the end, and he said, I want, he says, I pray for you every day. Yeah, I was really touched by that. You know, he said, I pray for you every day. I thought, I hardly even know this man. You know, I'd say I've met him probably five times. And yet he prays for me every day. And that's such an encouragement. And I know some of you have prayed for me every day, and I'm appreciative of that, and thank you for that. But when your next pastor comes, pray for him every day. Remember him. Now, I didn't want to bring this up, but last night, Chelsea won the Champions League Cup final. It was a tremendous game and one of the happiest nights of my life. Although I wasn't allowed to cheer because the babies were asleep, so I had to scream silently. But imagine the scene. Imagine the scene if you were watching the Champions League Cup final. And the two teams came out, Manchester City on the one hand with Pep Guardiola, their coach, and Chelsea on the other hand with Thomas Tuchel and, as their coach. And then as the game was about to start, imagine if the Chelsea team walked off and they just left the coach on the pitch. And the commentators say, well, what's going on here? You know, uh, what's, the, what's the coach doing out there all by himself? And, and the captain of Chelsea says, well, uh, he's going to play today. Well, what about you guys? Aren't you going to play? Is he going to play all by himself? Well, you know, he has the most experience, and uh, he understands the tactics better than anybody. And anyway, he gets paid more than the rest of us. And so we thought that we just let him get on with the game, and, you know, we'll all stand here and cheer him on. So the game kicks off. Thomas Tuchel gets in a lucky tackle and begins to head up toward Manchester City's goal, but he's quickly surrounded by midfield players, and before you know it, in a matter of seconds, Chelsea are down 1-0. At the end of the game, what happens? The poor coach is carried off, exhausted and traumatized. You get the picture, don't you? But that's how it is in many churches. Many members expect the pastor to do all the preaching, all the praying, all the witnessing, all the visiting, and more besides because he's paid to do the work and because he's the professional, so to speak, and, uh, and he's better trained than anybody else. But listen to God's game plan. We read it already. Ephesians 4.11. He gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors, teachers, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work 
of the ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God gives leaders to the church not so that those men do all the work, but to help God's people do the work. Church members are not there simply to pay pastors and allow them to get on with it. So whoever you call as your next pastor, understand this, don't just write the check and cheer him on from the sidelines, but praise him, provide for him, protect him, prove him, and pray for him, and you'll find that God will use him amazingly. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts this morning. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for your love. We thank you this morning for your grace. We thank you this morning for your gifts. We thank you for the gift of the pastoral office and of a pastor. And Father, as our church proceeds toward the calling of a pastor, I pray, Father, that they might indeed find someone whom they can freely esteem and honor, someone whom they will be happy to provide for and protect, someone who will be proven, someone who does have a good testimony in the church and out of the church, and that they will pray for that man as a matter of daily practice. Father, I just pray that you'd bless our church and that your will will be done and that this church will grow, not just numerically, but also spiritually under the new charge. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's sing our last hymn.